0: You're listening to the RSA Conference Podcast, where the world talks security. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the RSA Conference Podcast. I'm Hugh Thompson, Program Committee Chair for RSA Conference, and I am joined today, as always, by Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference. Hi, Britta. How are you?
1: I am well. Happy Friday. It's great to be with you, okay. Hugh, and listeners. So today, there's certainly never a shortage of challenges facing our industry. And our goal at RSA Conference is to listen and learn from each other. We have a smart community of passionate practitioners with the goal of making the world a safer place. The recent ransomware challenges facing the city of Baltimore have spawned some interesting conversations. And our goal with this discussion today is is not to speculate around anything. Um, frankly, we don't think that's productive conversation, but we do want to have a conversation that can help our listeners learn from these challenges and implement policies and practices in their own organizations to hopefully help them achieve a better security posture. So we have two excellent experts here with us today. Wendy and Andrew, thanks for joining us for this conversation. Please introduce yourself to our listeners.
2: Hi, I'm Wendy Nather, and I head up the advisory CISO team at Duo Security, which is now part of Cisco. I am a former CISO myself in the public and private sectors, former industry analyst, as Andrew well knows, and uh, also worked on the retail ISAC before coming over to Duo.
3: My name is Andrew Hay, uh, and I am the COO at Lares. Uh, where we do penetration testing and red teaming and physical security assessments. Like Wendy said, I do know she was an analyst because I was also an analyst at the same firm, and we covered a lot of very interesting happenings in the industry. I am also a former chief information security officer, uh, though I have never worked in the government. I have been a CISO and a virtual CISO for a number of companies over the years.
0: Great. Hey, well, Andrew, Wendy, thanks so much for joining us. Really looking forward to this conversation. And Andrew, let me start with you. You curated an incredibly popular seminar on the Monday of RSA conference for the past few years that's focused on ransomware and emerging threats. And it's, it's incredible. I remember the first year that you did this, it was like a denial of room attack or something. There were so many people that wanted to get in uh, on that thing, and the fame of it has only grown. But I'd love to ask you, you know, you've guided a lot of discussions on the topic of ransomware in particular. Why does it seem to be Groundhog Day on this topic? We're constantly reading about new events that are happening in this space. Are we making the same mistakes over and over? How's this threat evolving? What are you
3: seeing? Well, what's interesting is that because it is financially motivated, the attackers know that they can make a lot of money with probably more anonymity than any other extortion technique that's ever happened in the history of not just the internet, but crime itself. So, Now that organized groups and even individuals know that they can profit from ransomware on a tremendous exponential scale, it's something that's going to keep happening over and over and over again. You know, we can fix the issues that people are having exploited today where ransomware is getting installed, but that just means that the attackers know that if something changes, they have to adapt their tactics as well if they want to keep making that money. So it's extortion, plain and simple, just with a new technological capability and increased anonymity.
1: Wendy, I'm going to lob a question to you. We're, we're seeing a variety of attack vectors and approaches being taken with these different ransomware attacks. So up in the conversation a little bit, what does the landscape look like? And what should organizations be aware of and concerned about?
2: Well, a lot of organizations think that ransomware only comes in through email, for example, and that's just not true. One really great example uh, and case study to look at is uh, one that the Colorado Department of Transportation published, and this is completely public. They have a public version of the action report out there talking about how, in their case, the ransomware first got in through a cloud instance that was set up. It was just supposed to be temporary and it wasn't secured. And as soon as it was set up, it was attacked through a a brute force password guessing attack. And apparently after about 40,000 tries, they got the default root password that was set there. And the problem is that that instance was connected to the internal domain at CDOT. So as soon as the attacker got privileges on that instance, they were able to be treated as part of the internal network. So, um, again, all of these details are public, which I think is really great of CDOT to, you know, let us learn from their example. And after that is when the ransomware was planted. So there, there are many different factors out there.
0: Hey, Wendy, let me me ask you just to follow up on that. You know, it's it's so interesting when you think about budgets, especially at the state and local government level, and you served as the CISO of the Texas Education Agency, and I'm curious, you know, take us inside the office of a government-funded organization, with the backdrop of these kinds of attacks, and I'll, I'll just share a, a quick anecdote to tell you why why I'm really personally interested in this. I'm from the Bahamas, and so we have, you know, a country-owned television station, which is typical in <laughs> tiny countries. And even us, we got attacked at that television station by a ransomware attack, and they couldn't broadcast for two days. And they just had no idea on how to think about how to budget for this thing. Talk to me about the realities of budgeting inside a state and local government agency for something like this.
2: Well, the general principle in the public sector, very understandably, is you don't spend any money that you don't absolutely have to, Um, you know, because that's just being prudent with the taxpayers' funds. And so, uh, you know, I myself had a budget of literally zero uh, when I started my public sector job. And luckily, we were able to get an exceptional item approved by the state legislature. And, and, you know, we got a budget and started building up the program. But in state and local government, it is so, so hard to get that sort of funding, even for infrastructure. Uh, you know, the taxpayers expect you to run the business on... Whatever is up and running for as long as it will run, they will not pay for an upgrade or or hardware refresh just because there's something new out there. If it's working fine, you're expected to keep it running, and that's it. So there's very, very little funding out there for the sort of maintenance and updates and innovation and so on that, you know, we kind of have learned to expect from IT there are so many organizations out there that don't make it to RSA, for example, that that never show up at a conference because they don't have the money, and they're just making do with what they have for as long as they possibly can. Good insights. A question for both of
1: you here on our virtual couch in our virtual coffee shop here.
3: This is where it goes off the rails.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, was al- it was also civil
2: until no
1: no no it's it's Andrew's... decaf coffee decaf coffee oh, that we're okay, having okay. this morning it's... but we're going to start with andrew and then wendy you get a pipe in so any going off of rails you get to make it really interesting okay so many organizations likely not just um you know public entities but there's limited budgets that's the reality um so how should organizations with those limited budgets approach security without spending a fortune? Um, Are there basic security hygiene principles, practices? What would you recommend as best practices? Andrew?
3: You know, I'm a very big proponent of looking at the Center for Internet Security Top 20. It was built to provide security hygiene guidance, and it has been measured to be very successful just implementing the top five or six Controls. And if you look at the documentation around that, it's saying things like know what your assets are, know what applications are installed. And those are the first two of 20. And as a former incident responder, I can tell you that if I have that information in hand, I can respond to an incident more effectively, more efficiently, and it's not going to cost as much time or effort or money to resolve an incident. So that along with really having training established for individuals in organizations that are using any sort of technology or handling sensitive data, they are your last line of defense and as an industry we need to stop treating them like the bad guys. They are our greatest assets in an organization and as such we need to train them to handle these types of incidents. When they pop up, you know, you need to know how to handle or at least how to report a suspicious email. How to identify a suspicious email. How to see if someone is following you through a door or someone in an area that is not supposed to be there. These are all concepts of security hygiene and security practices that we need to instill in our employees and peers.
2: So, Andy, uh, first off, Britta, I, I really hate the term best practices. Can I just say that right now? It's like best practices for whom? For what? Because it's all relative. I mean, best practices to completely secure a computer would be to encase it in concrete and throw it into a pool. So, let's just skip the idea that we can, you know, dictate best practices that work for the Department of Defense or for a bank. To, you know, a a state or local government organization that doesn't have the same mission, has very different constraints. Uh, You know, let's talk about minimum possible practices. And, you know, I can tell you when I worked for the state, I did a lot of bartering. I did a lot of, uh, you know, doing whatever I could for free. Actually, I heard a great tip the other day, uh, when I was talking to somebody in retail where they figured out that of all of their users, only a couple were really being hit by phishing emails. And so, what they did was free and simple. They just changed the external email addresses of those two people, and they cut oh, down like ninety percent. They they cut their their phishing attacks by like ninety percent right there. That's awesome. Super. So, I, I agree with Andrew that we do need to be able to give these organizations more of the expertise that they need, but understanding that they are under enormous constraints that we can't solve for them. We can't just say, okay, you need to buy all the things. Uh They don't have the people to run it. They don't have the influence to get external suppliers to do things securely for them. So, th- there are a lot of additional problems that they have. So... I, I don't know where I was going with this anymore. I just got really excited.
0: No, I liked. I like that that strategy about just changing the two email addresses.
3: That you is great. Yeah. So that's kind of a counterpoint to the changing of the email addresses. I could see that working, but I see that creating so many other complications. Um, yeah. Just think of you know if it's a corporate email. Unless the directory is updated, you know people aren't gonna. They're gonna keep sending it to that old email, and it's gonna get bounced. Similarly, you're right. You're not really addressing the problem of oh well, they did all this with their old email and started receiving all this phishing email. How long until it happens again? And are they trained to actually handle what comes along with that email once it gets through the spam filters? And and all the other technical controls. That yeah,
2: are you're absolutely right. That That's not the only thing that they can do. But I, I'm emphasizing thinking creatively about different measures you can take, in some cases for free, that actually, you know, cut things down and do not involve having to buy really expensive systems. But, yes, doing things like that, I, I know of some who uh, they're most often fished executives have different external addresses and those emails are opened on hardened systems on separate networks by, you know, their administrative assistants, for example. Uh, or the, the people whose job it is to click on attachments all day, like in HR uh, or in accounting, are also treated differently. So th- there are a lot of different ways that you can address these problems. And I think what would help the most is to have a catalog of simpler, cheaper, controls that go along with the generic recommendations from, like, the the CIS Top 20. Like, you know, they would say, you know, know what you have, but the answer is, okay, great, how do we know what we have? How do we do discovery in an easy way? So I think, you know, tips and tricks and and a catalog of accessible activities and processes and controls would really go a long way.
0: I have to ask this with both of you on the phone, you know, and this Mm -hmm. is a little bit of of a touchy question, but it's a fascinating one to me about ransomware in particular. So, Wendy, you're just talking about the constraints on budget, and Andrew was talking about how easy it is for cyber criminals to do this now because of the anonymity of payments and those kinds of things. I want you to walk me through, because I think we've all had this experience where someone that knows us in the security space has called in a moment of panic because they are going through one of these ransomware attacks. And I'm just curious to get both your points of view, and Wendy, I'll, I'll start with you. How do people actually, when the rubber meets the road, typically react? to this kind of stuff. Like there's ransomware attacks that we hear about, and then there's ones that we don't hear about. Do people actually pay the ransom or not? What's the way that they start to think about this? What's the thought process they go through? You know, it's, it's something that's not, not talked about as much as I think it should be, but I'm just curious to get your views on maybe not even what the right thing is to do, but what do you what do you see play out in practice?
2: Well, the first thing that they typically do is order a bunch of pizzas for the IT team.
0: Aha. Okay. Um, That's the first thing to monitor from the outside.
2: Exactly. You know, but a bunch of pizzas being ordered. But seriously, uh, you know, I heard a great talk by the CISO of the state of Colorado about how they started reacting, how they walked through the timeline of reacting to this ransomware. And one of the problems is that they didn't know how to staff up for an ongoing long-term firefighting mission as opposed to the nine-to-five, you know, people coming into the office and then going home again. You know, this was a real incident, a real crisis, and they found that they really had to learn from and 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 reach for the guidance of first responder organizations that they had in Colorado who were more used to dealing with natural disasters, but they actually knew how to, you know, start staffing, and and doing all the logistics for a sustained and long-term incident response, which you sometimes need when you are dealing with something like ransomware. So let let me throw it over to Andrew because uh, he's had a lot of experience here.
3: Actually, the most recent case I've seen was my cousin messaging me on Facebook. You know, you'll laugh because I received a message that said, OMG, my company's under cyber attack. And I'm like,
0: oh, boy, on Facebook. Yeah,
3: okay, Okay. tell me more. (laughs) And it turns out, so she works for a multinational company, and they had a bunch of their systems that were infected by ransomware. And she's like, what do we do? I'm like, well, you're in Montreal. I'm in Austin. If you want, I can talk to your IT guy. Oh, he's gone home for the night. All right. No, no. Obviously, <laughs> it's a very get that guy up. <laughs> Find his house. Yeah. And I'm like, well, here's my number. Have him call me in the morning if you want some help. And so I get a message on Facebook the next morning saying, "Well, we went to our insurance carrier, and they've given us our approved incident response company, and they're working on it right now." So I've never heard the follow up as to whether you know the ransom was paid, if it was resolved i know that the the variant of ransomware that they were using did not have a public decryptor available so that wasn't going to be just an easy okay here's the tool go fix yourself but the idea of paying or not paying you know there's there's two camps on this and if you take a look at the city of atlanta so it's reported that they've spent upwards of they say 2.6 million but it could very well be as high as 17 million for the complete recovery. And that's what was spent to avoid paying a $50,000 ransom. So, I wonder if they sit back and say, okay, well, if this happens again, do we just pay $50,000 instead of several million? Uh, I can guarantee you everyone that's on the financial side of things or those departments are going to say, yeah, just pay the money. You know, here, use the company card. Let, let's make this happen because they don't want to incur that huge loss in the hopes that the insurance company is going to reimburse them. Because as you know, in the history of insurance companies, uh, they will try and sniff out every single little loophole to avoid paying out their customers. And that's their job. You know, their job is to make money by not paying out the insurance policy. So don't just put all of your faith. In the insurance policy for your fiber resiliency, uh, you need to really sit back and make a decision as to, you know, is paying $50,000 now a much better use of our time and money versus paying $17 million in recovery fees?
2: But the question is always, you know, if we pay the ransom now, is it going to happen again? And are all the other ransomware groups going to come after us because they know that we will pay? There's always that question, too. So, yes, it's it's always going to be more expensive to fix the underlying problems that allowed, you know, the the ransomware to happen. And I hate to say it, but, you know, very smart CISO told me once that sometimes they're just one breach short of getting a budget increase to fix the problems they know that they need to fix. And if they're lucky, it's going to be somebody else's breach. So, you know, this is unfortunately an opportunity to go to your own management and say, you know, one of our peers was hit by this. Can we make sure this doesn't happen to us? Because we really don't know what the actual total cost would be if we got hit ourselves.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I heard an industry analyst several years ago who said, and it wasn't one of you. You were two industry analysts that I did uh, work with when it doing was
2: doing that, but it was, ni- it was on, neither, it was neither of doing? you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> she said wisely, the turning point in our industry for people getting budgets will be when there's sustained stock price impact from a breach that happens and just a couple weeks ago, there was a Moody's report on the Equifax stock price and it pointed to the 2017 breach and sustained long term impact to the stock price. So so it'll be interesting to watch, you know, again, you hope it's not your breach. You never want it to be a breach. You never you never want anyone to be breached. And yet those are the things that do cause action to be taken. Um Wendy, I, I thought what you were talking about about first responders that was fascinating. That was interesting and and I think of how many in our community, are also first responders, or, or you know, have training in that, or background in that. You, um, you've been such a visible leader in the community um, and an advocate for behaving like a community that looks out for, supports, helps, um, you know, encourages. How can we help in situations like this? What can and should we be doing as as a community to help other organizations?
2: You know, I think we need to be reaching out to the invisible majority out there, the ones who, you know, when I give a talk and I talk about what I call the security poverty line and the dynamics of it, people invariably come up to me afterwards and say, yes, that's us. Don't tell anybody. So there's a a big group out there of people who need expertise and help. I, I was just talking the other day with a nonprofit called Sightline Security. Uh, that's run by Kelly Masada. And uh, their mission is to help nonprofit organizations secure themselves. So, a nonprofit helping other nonprofits. And we need a lot more of that. Uh, we, we do need more community organization around helping the least capable of us. And I just want to emphasize that. It isn't always just public sector or, you know, just small organizations that suffer from this. I've seen some really large organizations that struggle with security, too. And it isn't just a matter of, you know, giving them more money, although that, you know, some, in some cases that helps. Uh, but we need to address all the factors behind security, poverty. And I'm pretty sure we don't understand what all of them are yet. It's very complex. But th- this is something we do need to pay attention to.
0: Yeah, no, well said, Wendy. And I, I can't thank you both enough for for this session. I I think we do so many of these podcasts, and they're they're really focused around you know people with a lot of resources, large companies, enterprises. But I think this was such a great discussion around the reality of all of the smaller organizations and, you know, public sector organizations that have to deal with the reality of attack. So thanks so much for your thoughts and insights. And Andrew, although you threatened to go off the rails, you did not go off the rails too badly uh so no i really appreciate it. this is a great discussion and hopefully uh, if if you both are up for it we can continue the dialogue in a future podcast on this topic there's so many things to talk about here but thanks very much really appreciate it britta thank you and thank you to our listeners and we'll see you next time